On November 2nd, 1852, the Democrat candidate for president, Franklin Pierce, running on a platform of nothing much, defeated the Whig candidate, Winfield Scott, and the Free Soil candidate, John P. Hale, by receiving 51% of the vote. The music for this podcast is Stephen Foster's 1854 hit single, Genie with a Light Brown Hair. Stephen Foster is on the 1941 cent famous American composer's stamp, Scott's number 879. Genie with the Light Brown Hair is so popular and even known today because it had a resurrection in the 1930s because of a radio boycott. It was said that Genie was played so often in the 1930s and 1940s that Genie was widely reported as having turned gray. An interesting side note, the American Society of Composers Authors and Publishers, the ASCAP, was boycotted by music radio stations due to their increase in royalty fees. Between 1931 and 1939, the ASCAP increased the royalty fees charged to radio stations like NBC and CBS by as much as 450 percent. And then in 1940, the same year Stephen Foster got his postage stamp, they tried to double it again. Radio stations boycotted, and they boycotted ASCAP's quarter of a million songs. They started playing music that was in the public domain, like Genie with the Light Brown Hair, that was written about 90 years earlier. Broadcast Music Incorporated, known today as BMI, and probably you have all heard of, was also started to fight these fees. You probably heard of BMI as they have singers like Lady Gaga, Taylor Swift, Eminem, Rihanna, and a whole bunch more. The election of 1852 was held in the aftermath of the Compromise of 1850, which was actually a series of five bills passed by the U.S. Congress in an effort to settle the issue of slavery once and for all. The Compromise admitted Texas as a slave state. Also, the government assumed Texas's public debt. Remember that Texas was an independent country, and it had run up quite a large debt. 
in the compromise, California was admitted as a free state. It was considered and discussed that California should be split in two, having a slave state and a free state part. It was also discussed that California would get two senators, but one was forced to be pro-slavery and one was forced to be against slavery. In the end, it was admitted as just a normal free state. The compromise stated that future states would vote on whether or not slavery would be permitted. This ended up as a total failure as the Kansas-Nebraska Act gave rise to bloody Kansas and almost jump-started the Civil War in 1854. We will discuss that on the next podcast. The compromise also included the Fugitive Slave Law. The Fugitive Slave Law was nicknamed the Bloodhound Law by Northerners for the dogs that were used to track down runaway slaves who had made it to free states but were considered still slaves. This was an incredibly unpopular law in the North. The Compromise also banned the slave trade in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. used to be shaped like a diamond. But if you look at it today, part of that diamond is gone. And that's because that's where the slave auctions were held. They are no longer part of Washington, D.C. The Compromise of 1850 played a major role in postponing the American Civil War. It was thought at the time it had resolved the slave issue. So having just avoided starting the Civil War in 1850, the Democrats and the Whigs were not at all interested in raising the issue of slavery in the election. The Democrats nominated Franklin Pierce after a very long process. At the Democratic convention, ballot after ballot produced only more hostility and division and they were in a terrible deadlock. The contenders were the very dour looking anti-slavery Michigan military officer Lewis Cass, who in photographs is always pictured with his hand in his shirt like Napoleon. Cass was kind of unpopular because he was one of Andrew Jackson's military leaders who were in charge of relocating the Indians. So he had a bit of baggage. The wishy-washy on slavery, Mr. Stephen A. Douglas, who was one of the authors of the Compromise of 1850 and later became famous for debating Lincoln, was also one of the people running for the nomination. Even today, historians debate whether Stephen Douglas was pro or against slavery. Another person looking for the nomination was the 1812 naval hero and pro-slavery governor of New York, William L. Macy, and also James Buchanan, 
but we're going to be discussing James Buchanan at length in the next podcast because he gets the nomination in 1856. After 49 ballots to get a candidate, finally a coalition of North and Southern delegates proposed the relatively unknown minor war hero from the Spanish-American War who had done absolutely no campaigning whatsoever, but was able to appease both sides of the party because he was a Northerner who was pro-slavery. And so Franklin Pierce received the nomination. The Whig Party had the same problem as the Democrats. The candidates for nomination were Northern war hero Winfield Scott, who was against the Compromise of 1850. Also, the balding, grumpy-looking, slave-tolerant and very old Senator Daniel Webster. And finally, President Millard Fillmore, who became president after Zachary Taylor's death, wanted re-election. But he was the president at the time. He signed the Compromise Bills of 1850 as president, and he had a lot of people who were against him. After 53 ballots, Daniel Webster had his supporters go over to Winfield Scott. So Winfield Scott got the nomination of the Whig Party. There was a third party, the Free Soil Party, and they nominated John P. Hale. The Free Soil Party ran on the argument that freemen and free soil constitute a morally and economically superior system to slavery. But since the Compromise of 1850 totally fixed slavery forever, Mr. Hale would receive very few votes. The Democratic Party and the Whig Party both had platforms which endorsed and promised to adhere to the Compromise of 1850. The election was marked by low voter turnout because the slave issue, which was the hottest topic, was totally ignored by both parties. With virtually no difference between the parties, it came down to a popularity contest. And Winfield Scott had more baggage than a plane flight to Hawaii. So Franklin Pierce won. The Democrat Franklin Pierce got 1.6 million votes. Winfield Scott, the Whig candidate, got 1.4 million votes, and John P. Hale, the Free Soil candidate, received 155,000 votes. And so Franklin Pierce became the 14th President of the United States. As an aside, William King, Franklin Pierce's Vice President, had tuberculosis and was too ill to attend the inauguration. He was sworn in in Cuba, where he had gone to search for a cure to tuberculosis. King became the only American vice president to be sworn in on foreign soil. 
He returned to the United States a few weeks later to assume his duties, but he died soon after that. Pierce didn't appoint another vice president, so there was a vice president for only two months of Pierce's four-year term. And during those two months, the vice president was in Cuba. The election of 1852 was the last time the Whig Party would run a person for president. The Whig Party split apart over its views on slavery, and after a flare-up in 1854, which again for the umpteenth time almost started the Civil War, the Northern Whig Party members, together with the Free Soilers, formed the anti-slavery Republican Party. It is interesting to note that the election of 1852 was the first political campaign where advertising covers were used. Winfield Scott put out a few of these quite scarce and valuable campaign covers. None have been seen from Franklin Pierce or John P. Hale. But collectors should be aware, Winfield Scott was a much younger man in 1852 and didn't wear his military uniform when he was campaigning. For collectors who find Winfield Scott campaign covers with him looking old and fat in a uniform, those are Civil War patriotic covers from the 1860s not election campaign covers from 1852. <laughs> 